Our gospel reading for today is taken from the gospel of Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 through 28. And I invite you to follow along online or on your phones in the sanctuary. We've removed the Bibles and the prayer books um, due to COVID, but I invite you to follow along. Or at the very least, listen to the sound of my voice. But first, let me set the stage. We have to remember that Jesus was frequently speaking to crowds. He was often teaching with other people around, not just the disciples. He was teaching cities and communities. And he had just been talking in verses 10 through 20, which I, which I won't read, but he was basically talking about what we say to each other, how we treat one another, that it matters what we say. The words that we use matter. And he goes on in his teaching, and he says, starting in verse 21, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged Jesus, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. Jesus answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman came and knelt before Jesus, saying, Lord, help me. Jesus answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Jesus said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered the woman, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Here ends the reading. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. I still have some notes for today's sermon. This is a teaching sermon. So often in the midst of a long-term trauma, as we're experiencing right now in our country, which is the pandemic, we can get so hyper-focused on our own parochial concerns, on our own status, that we forget that our world is in the midst of a fundamental shift. We've seen it with the Black Lives Matters movement. We've seen it with other social justice movements. And this week, we've seen it with a historic vice presidential pick, the Democratic nominee. And we cannot help but address these developments in our world and what we as people of faith might do to help create a better world for all. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Today's message is based on a very challenging scripture text. It is one of the most challenging gospel stories about Jesus in the entire Bible. And many pastors actually skip this passage rather than delve into its complexities. It's interesting, I was even talking to a group of clergy this week, and that's what they talk about is skipping this passage. 
but I hope that every person in this church, if you've been here for a while, this reading comes up every few years in the lectionary. So I'm hoping that this sounds familiar if you've been with us for a while. If you're new, even if you've been in church your whole life, you may never have heard this scripture this way before. And it's because it is challenging. It is all because one desperate, persistent woman wouldn't keep quiet and stay in her place in the face of an unjust society that valued men far more than it valued women. This unnamed woman in the scripture, she begged in the scripture to be seen and to be heard. I invite you to read the words in Matthew chapter 15. She begged to be seen and to be heard as she appealed for her ill daughter against the patriarchy, the, the male supremacy of the day. Interestingly, we will never know her name. She is unnamed. We will never know her name. But in the end, Jesus showed this woman respect as he demonstrated to everyone that he was man enough, human enough to change his mind. And that is good news. So, sometimes I think in my head, as we're doing justice work, the thought goes through my head when people are kind of mansplaining to women, you know, and it's, I'm in my head, I'm thinking, you want me to be quiet? You think that's what this is about? Women can give an amen online, or at least silently, if you've ever had that thought growth go through your head when you've been told to be quiet or when you've been interrupted repeatedly at work or you've been mansplained when trying to make a point how many of you know what i'm talking about when i talk about mansplaining and again before we play this video i want to tell you this is not that in any way we are being critical of men we are being critical of the the patriarchy the male supremacy that is embedded in a good part of our world and we're going to get to this in a minute because if we think about it we had a vice presidential nominee this week and if you think about it we once again as i look at our young women who come into our sanctuary and we have to explain yet again why all of our presidents are male have you thought about that what that says to our young ladies and our daughters that all of our presidents continue to be male and so what does it mean when we bravely have women run for office in one way or another? But let me take a step back because we have to take a look at what it means to define some of the terms that I'm going to use in today's sermon because this is what was happening to the woman in this text. She was being mansplained, if I use a contemporary 2020 term for what was happening in the text. But we have to read the text in the context of 2,000 years ago to really understand what was happening. But first, let's talk about mansplaining. Am I seeing any activity online that anybody knows what I'm talking about? Raise your hand in the sanctuary if you know what I mean by mansplain. Pretty much everybody knows what I, what I mean. Take a look at this news clip. I'm a guy, and I know why these guys do this. The bottom line is this, lady. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm Calm down a bit here, Kelly. If it's a legitimate rape. I'll let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all. You've probably seen some of these cringeworthy moments before. They span from politics to pop culture, but they have one thing in common. A wildly overconfident man interrupting, shushing, and holding forth on a topic that he might not be the most qualified spokesman for. This phenomenon has become known as mansplaining. It's the word that's launched a thousand think pieces, including a few that are clearly over it. 
but we wondered, what does the science have to say about it? Back in 1984, a study observed that female doctors were more than twice as likely to be interrupted by patients than their male counterparts. A 2004 study found that men at Harvard Law were more than 50% more likely to comment in class and 144% more likely to speak up more than twice. And it happens in the workplace. A 2012 study found that when tasked with a group decision by majority vote, women spoke less than 75% as much as men. The media is not much better. A 2012 study found that men write 80% of traditional opinion pieces and 67% of them online. And the data shows that while there are fewer men than women on Twitter, men are retweeted more than twice as often. What the science shows is that mansplaining isn't an overused word flaming the gender wars. It's a cultural reference point that illustrates how women are more likely to be interrupted, less likely to speak, and are continuously robbed of the benefit of the doubt. It explains a nagging, sinking uncertainty that millions of smart, capable women feel all too frequently. And we can definitely use some more words for that. Now I know this video went by quickly and you can look it up on Upworthy. You can go online and Google mansplaining and find the research and the data that supports this. There's another video that I won't show today that explains that when um, women strive to hold their own in the workplace and offer their professional input and judgment as much as men, they are often told to shh, they talk too much, that happens in meetings still, especially if they are number one in male-dominated professions and number two in male-dominated meetings. If you want to look at the studies on gender and communication, look at the work of Deborah Tannen, the many books that she's written, and there's a whole body of scholarship now that has been developed around this phenomenon. So this isn't just perception, it's a reality. Ordained clergy women especially in our American church culture that tends to run 30 or 40 years behind the times sometimes, ordained clergy women also reported being continuously robbed, that's the language from the video, continuously robbed of the benefit of the doubt when it comes to tough decisions and controversies, just as professional women are in other professions. Well, I'm talking about this today. I mean, how many of you had not seen a female clergywoman in a senior pulpit until you got to St. John's. Yeah, we got hands raised and let us know online. Not the children and families minister, not the assistant, but the senior. You're still going to find a dearth of women in senior positions in industry all across this country. Well, after more than 30 years of professional experience, I continued to be, I continued to be appalled at what's considered acceptable to say and do to women in today's day and age. I continue to be appalled at how often women are literally shot down if they attempt to speak up, which is why I don't pass up the opportunity to preach on this particular passage in the Bible every three years or so when it comes up in the lectionary because it is, has something to offer our culture today. And again, I want to say again, this is not about men versus women at all. This is about the myth of male supremacy. It is about the myth that male is normative. We especially see this in religious life. The myth that male is normative and somehow women are less than. And again, I won't go into all the theology around that, what happened to women over thousands of years in religious history. Because we can all benefit in our world 
from our daughters growing up in a culture where they can live into the fullness of their gifts without restriction. I really appreciated what Dan put on his, um, it was either Facebook or Instagram this, this week, he had hashtag all my bosses are ladies. And I said, now how many men can say that? And then lift that up as, hey, that, that's a really cool thing. Hashtag all my bosses are ladies. I thought about what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was once asked, and she was asked, when, were the, when will there be enough women on the U.S. Supreme Court? Do you remember this quote? When will there be enough women on the U.S. Supreme Court to, to satisfy you, RBG? And she said, when there are nine of them. Right? So let us not forget that we have a long, long way to go. Look at what just happened to Dr. Acton here in Ohio, a woman of incredible integrity, formidable training and expertise with a wealth of data behind her. And how, how soon did it take us as a community to not want to listen to her? So I was very impressed. The lectionary serves us well sometimes because I was so impressed that this reading comes up in the lectionary. And we plan this months in advance when we pick our lectionary passages because it's every three-year cycle. And this comes up in the lectionary. We plan our worship around it. And what happened in our country this past week that was big news for women in the political landscape? Who can shout it out and tell me or tell me online? What was big news? Kamala Harris. The selection of Democratic vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris. Big news. And I have to wonder, right, what did our predominantly male newscasters and male politicians and male presidents, right, because, again, all the presidents have been male, what did they say? What did our current sitting male president of the United States of America have to say about the selection of Kamala Harris? Do you all remember? Can you tell me online? What words did he use to describe a United States senator? That's right. He called her nasty. Very nasty. And those are just his public comments, right? We all know, I remember women clergy banding together before the last election, not in any way to be partisan, but to say that some of the language that was being used about women and how women were to be treated and talked about was was not appropriate. And it was very hard to break above the noise and all of that. But the sitting president of the United States made unprofessional comments about the vice presidential pick. And he has made other sexist, racist, and other horrible comments about women and people of color and other um, ethnicities and other groups of people. And that is just what we have heard publicly. We continue to have a challenge in our country. And again, as I said, it's not with men per se, because we have many terrific men in our church who are working alongside and with us and are allied with women in the LGBTQIA plus community and others for quality for all. But our challenge is with the embedded and inherited patriarchy and prejudice against women, which is on top of everything else that we deal with. It's a a condition that we call male supremacy. Again, the myth that male is normative. So as I mentioned, it's why I don't hesitate to preach on this difficult passage. 
because the passage presents a challenging biblical exchange for for Jesus, but it continues to offer us insight into how we are to create a better world today for everyone. So, how many of you have told to be quiet, just not say anything, when you've been tempted to speak truth to power about abuse, about racism, about sexism, injustice, religious bias or indifference? How many of you have been told, just don't say anything? Hands are going up, especially among women. Don't rock the boat, right? Don't rock the boat. Don't make them mad. Many of us already have firsthand knowledge of the predicament that today's central biblical character finds herself in because she's got something to say. And that's the title of today's sermon. She's got something to say. She's got something to say about how she's being treated and about how her daughter is being treated. The Canaanite woman was desperate. Her daughter was ill. And maybe that's what helped her overcome her fear of challenging the system that she was in. Her daughter was ill and she needed Jesus' help. She had heard that he was a healer and a miracle worker. And she was desperate. So even though she was a Gentile, she was not Jewish, she was a Gentile. She was a Gentile who was someone at that time who was at the bottom of Jesus' Jewish religious and social scale. We have to remember at this point in the text, Jesus was only bringing the good news to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. That's what was happening in the text at this point in the 15th chapter of Matthew. But the woman needed help. So she kept speaking up, speaking out, shouting against the religious tradition of her day. And she was arguing with the very human son of God in public, calling on him to transcend the sexist, racist, religious lines of that time to minister to her and her daughter because she's got something to say. The Canaanite woman in this text challenged Jesus to meet her where she was, outside the lines. So she she went right up to Jesus and said, I need you to meet me outside the lines of your ancient cultural prejudice and religious preference, not just for men, but your religious preference. The woman called on Jesus not to be a religious, not to be prejudiced in the religious sense, not to be prejudiced in the um, sexist sense, and not to be a male supremacist. She challenged Jesus to minister to all people, whether or not they were in his Jewish religious custom or racial class, because we have to remember back then it wasn't just about religious preference. It was about social class. She challenged Jesus to show us all the abundant wideness of God's mercy, despite the religious status quo of the time. Now, today, we might not know how jarring that conversation was to the people of the day who were listening, other than what I've just been doing at the beginning of this sermon, which you might find unsettling. You might be like, well, that's not what I expected to hear today. And so if you're feeling like, hey, you were jarred out of a sense of complacency going into today's sermon, that's kind of how the people were feeling when they started to hear this woman shouting at Jesus. But... To give you another example about how the listeners to this conversation 
would have um, heard this, how jarring it would have been. I want to tell you a story about arguing with children. And it's one of my favorite stories about arguing with children. I invite you to remember it because it's a good one. A little girl was talking to her teacher about whales. The teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human, even though it was a very large mammal, because the throat of a whale is very small. So the teacher said it is scientifically impossible for a whale to swallow a human. But the little girl raised her hand and said, but teacher, it says in the Bible that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. You heard that story before? It says Jonah was swallowed by a whale. But irritated, the teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It was physically impossible. So the little girl replied, well, teacher, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. The teacher sarcastically fired back, but what if Jonah went to hell? And the little girl replied, then you ask him. That's how the people of that day would have heard this exchange, right? They would have seen the woman as being disrespectful and stepping out of place. She wasn't staying in her place, and she was challenging someone who was not meant to be challenged, a religious teacher. The little girl and her teacher were kind of religious debate partners, you might say, in that moment. And that's what today's gospel passage is all about. It is about arguing with Jesus. It's about being Jesus's religious debate partner. Now, I'm going to invite you, I'm going to walk you through this text, and I'm going to walk you through a wonderful theological and historical and biblical analysis, and I invite you to follow along with me, because this is a perspective that is not often shared, and it is often overlooked, because it is a challenging perspective on Jesus. But hang with me till the end, and you'll see what he's doing. Jesus and the Canaanite woman became religious debate partners in this passage. And the outcome of their debate changed the course and scope of Jesus' ministry. You may not realize that, that this particular exchange was a fulcrum point in Christian history because it changed the perspective of Jesus' ministry. When ultimately, at the end, he commended the woman's faith and healed her daughter outside the lines of his faith tradition. So today's gospel passage from the gospel of Mark is the same story of Jesus's encounter with this woman that we find in the gospel, or excuse me, gospel of Matthew. It's the same story we find in the gospel of Mark. So I invite you to look it up in Mark this afternoon and read it there as well. We see two gospel writers whose pens sputter with the same question of social boundaries and lines, lines of sexism patriarchy, prejudice, xenophobia, authority, election, and tradition. As a woman asks, essentially, how wide is God's mercy, really? The mere presence of a woman in today's story should make our ears perk up because we forget how devalued women were in Jesus' time. So the woman actually in this story has three strikes against her. You can't miss it if you know biblical history. She has three strikes against her. Before she even opens her mouth, she has three strikes against her. Number one, she is racially a Syrophoenician or Canaanite, depending on which version you're reading. 
Number two, she's culturally a Greek, a Gentile. And number three, she had no male, no husband or brother or son or male relative who could act on her behalf. Because at this time in religious tradition, she was supposed to stay at least two arms distance back from a pious Jewish man. You may not know enough biblical history to know that, that back then women had to stay at least two arms back from a pious Jewish man. This woman was considered one of the great unwashed with whom observant Jews of Jesus's time had little contact. And she is a Gentile. Those of you who took the Route 66 Bible study class know what I'm talking about. We studied a lot of this history. Raise your hand or let us know online if you took that year long class. It was a wonderful class. But as such, this woman was seen as both an outsider and literally untouchable. So how does Jesus respond to, the woman, to this woman? He responds with one of the most unique experiences of rabbinical or theological debate in the whole Bible because Jesus invites a low-class woman to debate him a woman who has no standing in that culture to even talk to him. But being on the bottom of the social scale did not stop the Canaanite woman because she's got something to say. And the troublesome part of this gospel passage, and it's what causes many pastors to not dig deep. They just skim over it and they're not going to deal with it. And that's why many people who've been in church their whole life have not really ever heard this passage other than the great is your faith part. Your faith has made your daughter well. That's the only part they ever hear. They don't hear the part in the Bible where it looks like Jesus is treating this poor woman with disrespect. So I'm going to ask you to pull out your Bibles, pull up the text and take a look. Because I'm going to ask you a question and you don't have to answer it out loud or online because after all we are in church this morning. But it's a question I had to think about after reading a remarkable treatment of this text by biblical scholar Will Gaffney. Look her up. Will is spelled W-I-L. Gaffney is G-A-F-N-E-Y. She is a womanist, um, a theologian. She is a, a spectacular Hebrew Bible scholar. And um, her, her work is, on this text is remarkable. So... I had to think about this, though, because Gaffney is the one who said that Jesus is treating this woman with disrespect, and we cannot ignore that. A lot of people want to gloss right over it, but we have to dig into why, what was really happening in the text. So, remember that Jesus is essentially calling this woman a dog, but I'll get to that in a moment. So, what do we call a female dog? Don't put it online, because we're in church. But what is a female dog still called sometimes? You know the word I'm thinking of that starts with a B? It's a derogatory term that is still used for women today. It's A woman is never called that in a way that, I shouldn't say never, but a woman is typically not called that word in, a, in an honorary respect, right? It's typically used in a derogatory fashion. So this gospel at first does not sound like good news to women. Because Jesus said to a woman who is literally begging Jesus for help for her child, he says in the text, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And you have to think, wait, wait a minute. Did Jesus just call that woman a dog? Did he just call her the B word in 
biblical times? Dr. Gaffney explains that this scripture tests the limits of what we call our Christology. And again, this is a teaching sermon, if you've never heard that word Christology. Because we have to ask ourselves, how human was Jesus really? We understand that he's fully divine, but he was also fully human. And we have to think, in his humanity, did Jesus just insult this woman? Here's what Dr. Gaffney says. I'm going to read her words because she says it so well. She says, I know this is Jesus, and we've been trained to read him and hear him religiously, more than religiously, divinely, incarnationally. But Dr. Gaffney said, but where I come from, you cannot call a child a dog without calling her mama a dog. And you cannot call a woman a dog without calling her the B word. Dr. Gaffney says, in my best Queen Latifah, I want to ask Jesus, who are you calling them? Anybody get that reference? Queen Latifah is my generation, right? One of the first female rappers. Now, I know some of you don't know her famous song, Unity, U-N-I-T-Y. Um, I don't think it's that old, but it's been around for a while, right? Listen to a little Queen Latifah this afternoon if you can tolerate it. I love her. But if you get the cultural reference, you kind of get what's going on here, what Jesus is trying to do. Because in our supposed-to-be-good-news gospel lesson, Jesus calls a woman, Dr. Gaffney says this, Jesus calls a woman of color like me, a non-Jewish woman, a derogatory term. Dr. Gaffney said there is no honest way around it. Jesus was not talking about a pet dog. He used the word... Canarian, I'm going to spell it for you, look it up this afternoon, K-U-N-A-R-I-O-N. And Mary can put that in the live feed. It's a Greek word, Canarian, K-U-N-A-R-I-O-N. That's the word in the original translation that Jesus called this woman, which sometimes meant a smaller dog like those kept indoors in other cultures. But you may not know that the Israelites at that time did not keep pet dogs. Did you know that? There's your piece of scholarship for the day. I try and teach you new things every week. Did you know that? The Israelites did not keep pet dogs. For the Israelites, dogs were considered filthy animals, something like a cross between a hyena and a rat. They were often paired with pigs in the literature of the wider ancient Near East. They were considered these scavenger animals. They weren't pets. So the answer is, did Jesus really insult this woman? The answer is, yes, he did. That's why a lot of pastors ignore this passage. Because they don't want to deal with the fact that did Jesus in this text insult this woman? The answer is, yes, he did. His meaning read more deeply is that his immediate mission at that time was to the Jewish people. And it was not right to take the work that was meant for them and throw it to the dogs, meaning to the Gentiles. And to we modern readers... That sounds pretty awful. It sounds pretty unchristlike. But here's the thing. We are not hearing the exchange the same way the women did and all those who were in attendance to that conversation. We have to hear the progression from insult to invitation in this conversation. 
Commentator N.T. Wright, along with Will Gaffney and others, have helped me understand that Jesus' comments to the woman about dogs, if read just superficially, you see the insult. But in fact, rather than being rude, in this remarkable exchange, Jesus' insult is an invitation to the woman to be Jesus' theological debate partner. Now, you may not know that. You may not know the history of rabbinical debate. So rather than showing disrespect, which is what happens if you just read this passage literally, you miss this. But if you dig deeper into the context in which it was written and the socioeconomic religious tradition at the time, if you dig into the context, there's a deeper meaning to this passage. Rather than showing disrespect, Jesus is actually honoring this woman with this invitation because it is a theological debate, which was a role that at that time that was explicitly denied to women. So think about that. At that time, women were not allowed to be in debate with men. They had to be at least two feet back they, or two arms lengths back. They had to be quiet. They, had to sh- they couldn't speak their mind. And Jesus invited this woman into debate. So in the rhetorical, theological debate tradition of that day, what is fascinating about this text, and look at the words, is the Canaanite woman, she gives it right back to Jesus, right? So look at the text. She gives it right back to Jesus. She accepts that the religious leaders who are paying attention to this conversation, she accepts that they think that she is a dog. Yes, Lord, she says, I get that you and these religious leaders think that I am a dog and shouldn't get the children's food. She presumes that she isn't invited to the table with the others. But, she said, but what about these crumbs? What about those crumbs? Because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And at that moment, in between breaths, The Canaanite woman's theological presence is magnified and all are shown Jesus's new ministry to the Gentiles. The Canaanite woman called Jesus to cross right over that prejudicial, religious, male supremacist line in the sand that he had been taught to show the world how wide God's mercy really is. An inclusive mercy that colors all outside and all around our man-made lines, right? How many of us are told to color inside the lines and find that it's outside the lines where we find our salvation, right? Okay, get an amen, because that's the fulcrum of our Christian faith story. This is the fulcrum of our Christian faith story in the 15th chapter of Matthew, when the entire weight of human history shifted as Jesus publicly debated the scope of his ministry and mission, and he invited a desperate, despised Gentile mother to debate him as he challenged us all to transcend the lines of our patriarchal, racist, supremacist traditions by offering a new vision of inclusiveness for all of God's children. And here we are today, as we've worked through this text, you're here today listening to another woman in this pulpit who refused to be silenced by patriarchy and prejudice. Because I had something to say. But I know how many women are denied this privilege which is why I don't skip over this text. 
how many women are denied this privilege merely on the basis of their gender. Jesus taught us otherwise. Because I wanted to show you this is an image of what love can be. This is an image of what church can be. This is an image of what clergy can be. This was taken at the vigil at Charlottesville a few years ago. We've reached the anniversary of when all that happened. This is when clergy from all over the country of all descriptions traveled in to provide support. And I love that that picture because this is what love looks like in public, right? This is what love looks like in public. It's what the streets of Columbus have been filled with during the Black Lives Matters movement. This is love in public, not fear, not hate, but love and faith. Because only love and faith can conquer the hate and fear in our religious traditions and in our world. And I say to each of you who've hung in there and listened to this message today and been engaged in biblical and theological and historical scholarship in a short period of time, in a week where we've had our first um, female vice presidential um, pick of color, and there's lots more ways to describe the enormity of Kamala Harris's impact on our history. But I share that with you this week because each of us is called to minister outside the lines that we've drawn for ourselves, not because we have to or even because we want to, because, but it's because we know that God's own self waits for us on the other side of the line that we've drawn. Let us pray. Creator God, you created us all in your image in all of our differences and complexities. Help us to follow the example of the Canaanite woman who called a prejudicial system into question by daring to say something. Remind us that our silence in the face of injustice is complicity and our professed faith is a challenge to grow beyond our own comfort zones. Guide us in our work and in our witness as we seek to share your healing love with an ailing world. In the name of your son, Jesus, who is still rolling stones, we will sing that song with all of our heart at the end of today's service. In the name of your son, Jesus, who is still rolling stones outside the lines and continues to invite us to the debate for the soul of our humanity. In his name, amen.